welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode 716 on February the 3rd. As you can probably hear, this is Rich again. Uh, just coming off the back of Jim's excellent chat last week with Skylar Vickroy, ex-host and friend of the show. We're on a bit of a roll at the minute with interviews, speaking to lots of interesting people. So I recently had the pleasure to speak to somebody whose name will be familiar to, I'm pretty sure, all of the listeners. And that's former British Superbike, World Superbike and MotoGP rider, James Hayden. Now, as tends to be the case with these things, James gave us a lot of his time. It was actually quite a long chat. Very interesting talking about his career, both in terms of riding and then more latterly what he's done post-racing career. Now, my chat with James was truncated slightly due to an unforeseen interruption. There is a hopefully a reasonably neat edit point in there around about the 51 minute mark. Other than that, all that it remains for me to say is that Jim and I are planning to have our long-talked-about and yet-to-happen chat about Moto3 2022 and give our rider rankings for that season. And of course, we still have quite a few very interesting guests planning to come on the show, so watch this space. Anyway, coming up next is my chat with James Hayden. Massive thanks to James for giving us his time, and I hope all of you enjoy listening to our chat. So, here we go. Hi everyone, Rich again here. Now, I'm delighted to say we have a first-time guest on the show today. He's a former national and world championship rider, and a man who still graces our screens through his commentary work in the UK with Eurosport, possibly ITV as well, I think. Anyway, I'd like to introduce you to James Hayden. James, never been on the show before, so great to have you on. Yeah, lovely. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on. So yeah, all good. Hi there. Everyone. We've been going since 2005, so still yeah. in your riding career. But yeah, just for one reason or another, we've never had you on the show before. So it's a great pleasure to welcome you to Motopod. So the plan is to have a chat about the racing career. Yep. Have a talk about the post-racing activities that you're now heavily involved with and a bit of a chat about the state of current top flight bike racing. And then we'll finish off with a few light-hearted things. But before I start talking to you about your career, I just wanted to preface it because I always come across as a bit of a sycophant with these sorts of things because, you know, you get people on that you want to talk about because I think we're of a similar age. I was born in 1972, so... Yeah, I'm 73. Okay, so I obviously followed your career all the way through. Yeah. Much of it was trackside as well. But I've got to preface it by saying for a person that was as talented and won so many races as you did, when I read through your bio, I'm just struck by how much bad luck you had. Perhaps an affliction of many British riders, even still today, but certainly during your period, you know, the lack of support probably on the world stage. So kind of, I don't want this to come across too negatively when I talked to you about your career, because it was so varied. You rode so many bikes. I mean, it's a stunning bio when you look at it. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, I feel you know, I was incredibly lucky. You know, I spanned it from riding, you know, two-stroke 500 Grand Prix bikes, you know, to MotoGP bikes, um, yeah. you know, World Superbikes, British Superbikes, you know, 250s. You know, I felt you know, very lucky. In some ways, you know, I know you. it's easy to say you kind of create your own luck, but equally you can just not have those chances come at the right time. And yeah, I certainly think it was a lot more difficult in our day in that, you know, it wasn't even just getting there on a bike that was 25 miles an hour too slow, but it was also the tyre wars were going on. So it was like... You know, you might have fourth level tyres. And so there was lots of things. You know, one of the things about these, you know, everyone being on the same tyres now would have just been a dream sort of back then. And something like Moto2 when really it's so competitive, the bikes are so similar that yeah. the top riders shine. Yeah. You know, also back then in the 90s and stuff, it was very, you know, it was a lot of cigarette sponsorship. And we just weren't a kind of an in-nation for that. You know, Lucky Strike didn't have a profile in the UK, you know, blah, blah, mm. blah. So there was quite a lot of things that sort of went against you. You know, having 
said that, you know, obviously you know, a lot of my compatriots, you know, whether it be Hodgson or Bayliss, you know, went on to win world championships or toes and, you know, guys that, you know, I beat. And so, but I don't know, I'm very, I've, I've had a, well, you know, I had a wonderful career, you know, I raced a lot of stuff, I had a mm. great fun, I came out in one piece. Yeah, true, which a lot of people didn't. Yeah, and, um, and so... You know, there was a miss and buts, there were some chances where it just gone a different way. You know, do I have regrets? Yeah, of course. You know, there's always a few things you think, oh, I wish that had happened. You know, I never rode something competitive in the World Championship, mm. you know, which is ultimately why, you know, I just came back to BSB because I wanted to be dicing at the front and, and enjoying racing at the front. And, um, and I just couldn't quite see that how that was going to happen in the world championship yeah. you know but as I say when I look back I'm not one of these guys that's like oh I could have done that I could have done that you know at the end of the day you know I was lucky I made good money at it as well yeah. which I think is something that a lot of guys aren't doing now mm. that was also great you know it came out and you know I came out in a good position and having had a, a brilliant life you know I've never had a job interview I've never had a proper <laughs> job um, so you know, these are as far as I'm concerned. I'm you know I'm doing all right. These are fringe benefits. Okay, well that's a nice summary. So let's dig into a little bit of detail then. So yeah. I mean, as we've just discussed, you rode at the highest level for more than a decade and on an enormous variety of equipment. I mean, it's staggering when you sort of read through it. And we'll talk about that a, a little bit in a minute. But like a lot of people, you started off in motocross, schoolboy motocross, I guess. Yeah. Again, going back to the sort of the nineties, it was different times. I mean, now you've got lads and, and lasses on bikes at the age of sort of four and five, haven't you? But yeah, you went right. across to road racing, I think at about the age of 16 didn't you so what prompted the move from motocross over to roads or track racing i just my dad went to the tt every year since you know 78 when Hailwood came back and won on the Ducati, and Mm -hmm. he'd bring me back programs and and whatever and i just you know i was obsessed with motorbikes you know eddie lawson was you know the boy at the time and like you know we get motorcycle news and i'd just pander on it and i just wanted to go road racing it just sort of sang to my soul i can remember a friend who had a you know, he had a road bike and didn't let me have a little razz round on it. You could get away with it in those days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just, it, I just loved the way it made me feel. You know, I just was like, I've got to do this. I've got to try and sort of move across. And back then you couldn't do road racing until you were 16. Right. So as soon as I was 16, you know, after a lot of persuading with my mum and dad, who were great, you know, but they, I said, I want to go road racing. I had a YZ125 that I was racing in the nationals and we sold that and got a little TZR 125, which was called Mini Stocks. And it was a great class. So, you know, Neil Hodgson was in it, you know, a guy called Mark Norman who was tragically killed. But, um, yeah, it was a really good starting class because they weren't that quick, but they handled well. And mm-hmm. it, it, it taught me so much. And I finished second in that championship that year. You know, I won more races than anyone. And um, it was great. But we didn't know a single thing about bike racing at all. My dad was a doctor. My mum, we didn't know anyone that raced. No, you know, my dad had never raced. So it was kind of sort of funny. I can remember at the second to last round, you know, I lost the front and crashed. And, you know, it cost me the championship. And my dad was like, what? You know, and I said, I don't know. It's weird. It just doesn't feel as well. And, and we were we were trying to work out. And, and another guy came over who did know what he was talking about. And he's like, felt the tires. And he's like, well, when did you change your tires? And we're like, well, we haven't changed them. You know, there's nothing wrong with them. You've still got, you know, the, the cuts <laughs> in them. And the guy's like, well, you've been running the same tires all season, club racing, all the." And we were like, yeah. And he was like, well, they're hard as anything, you know. And it was stuff like that. So we did mm. a lot of learning, you know, put new tires in. It was like, wow. <laughs> But, you know, we were used to motocross where they, you know they're worn out, whereas they still look fine. So yeah, yeah. We, had, we had to do a lot of learning sort of the hard way. 
but it was great because also my parents were never they just used to go did you enjoy that you know there was no pressure there was no nothing so yeah. you know that was all just for me so there was none of that sort of motocrossy dad that you see of people racing their children you know it was something that I just found unbelievable fun that I just yeah. loved every moment of it I was just thinking about bikes all the time all my school books are all covered in motorbike pictures and helmets and it, and I just kind of knew I wanted to try and forge you know a career in that if I if I could it's so nice to hear of uh, you know that story of just the sort of the sheer unabated enjoyment of it you know clearly you didn't get dropped off 100 miles from home by your dad because he was fed up that you didn't win a race sort of thing like you hear some of these <laughs> fathers do yeah bonkers so you might have just sort of straight into it there but one of the things i read was that in 1993 so at this point you were in the 250 cc championship i think that's it you were runner-up in that year's championship and it sort of slipped through your fingers kind of a fun well not a funny story but as a footnote to that, how is it you don't have an ironic lifelong hatred of cameras and the media? Because tell the story about what happened that cost you that championship. Yeah, basically I had, I mean, I didn't even want it on my bike because they were so big and heavy then, but the BBC were covering and they put this kind of big unit that probably weighed, I don't know, five kilos or six kilos or something. It was a big wow. old thing and it was yeah. stuck to the back of my seat and we were at Snetterton and, I, and it, I could just, you know, it was getting this really weird sort of banging. I thought a moment made my rear wheel spin spindle was coming out do you know what I mean because it was mm. this sort of weird clonking and I was looking I couldn't see anything and then I went into Russell's and the bike just locked up and the camera had come down on the lead just gone straight in the wheel just locked it up and and that cost me the British Championship yeah. you know I was the only but I won three rounds that year no one else won more than one but you know, I love 250s you know they were just they're such a beautiful thing to ride they're so pure and most bikes have got too much power for their chassis so they're a bit like yeah. awkward whereas 250s it's just like a little scalpel do you know what I mean neat tidy but just lovely light they've got the perfect amount of balance weight they handle beautifully and it taught me a lot and obviously I was very lucky because I was riding with Ron you know Haslam and living at Ron Haslam's at yeah. that point you know I spent a, a year living up there in Smalley with, with him you know Leon was a little eight-year-old kid at the time <laughs> but it was you know it was just great days you know I absolutely loved it and again you know shit happens right yeah, yeah. You know, it'd be nice because that would have been a, you know, I never won a British championship and, you know, I feel like I'm, I should have won that. But, you know, in a day, shoulda, coulda, woulda, you know, it's done now. Yeah, you must be in a pretty small group of people that have lost a championship from a camera jamming their rear wheel, though. I mean, that's not a, not a very no. usual circumstance to happen, is it? No. Never mind the fact you were lugging five kilograms worth of bloody ballast around on the bike in the wrong place. No, that's right. It was, uh, with hindsight, it was a, a big regret. But, you know, these things, you know, like I say, I'm kind of, I'm not one to ever worry about, you know, yeah. what it is. However, I mean, the same year, 1993, again, unless I'm getting my dates wrong, I'm sure you'll correct me if I do, but you actually got, I presume we'd call it a wildcard ride at Donington yeah. on the flipping GP500 that year. So yeah. how did that actually come about then? So what happened is my first big break. So after, you know, 1990, I did the TZL 125s. 91, I raced uh, an RS 125 Grand Prix bike and also a RGV 250 in Supersport 400. Okay. And I was doing those and I put it on pole on the RS in the British Championship, you know, and I won. I was doing super teams, you know, I was winning a lot of rounds in that. You know, I was crashing too much, but I was just a little head case back then. And, you know, I was just absolutely determined. And, um, and then at the end of that year, my dad had also said... He said, look, when we first started this and we started getting good, he said, look, I'm going to support you for two years. But if you don't get picked up or sponsored or whatever, you've got to promise me you're going to go back. You know, you're going to either do your A-levels or college, you know, you and go you just sort of, you know, I was, I'll help you for a couple of years. And yeah. so at the end of 91, I was like, you know, I don't know, I had a good year, but equally, 
you know, I wasn't sure what was coming from. And Donington Park, who hosted the Grand Prix, wanted to bring on young British riders. They were looking like Team Italia in, in Italy. And so they devised a scheme with Yamaha. They'd pick a rider, they'd test him. And whoever it was would go up, live with Ron, be you know, sponsored by Yamaha. And, you know, I couldn't believe it when I got the Darren Mitchell was you know, tragically killed, you know, Brands Hatch. But he was one of the other guys. He was already, already racing 250s. I think there was Jason Vincent. There was a, a few guys. I'd never ridden a 250 Grand Prix bike. I got to Donington and suddenly I was like, Ron Haslam behind me and out you go. And <laughs> But to be honest, it you know, went well. wasn't the, the quickest, you know, but I'd never ridden one. But obviously Ron could see something in me mm-hmm. and uh, and I won it. And, you know, in January the 1st, I moved to Smalley and left home and I never went back. So there I was a little, you know, 18 year old and um, it was brilliant. You know, it was just a completely different life. You know, Ron and Anne are such amazing people. They really, you know, they helped me so much. He taught me so much about setting up a bike and just feeling things and knowing what the differences were. So yeah. that was how I got it. And it was all supported by Donington Park, you know, because they were trying to bring on these young riders. So that year they then said, look, we let's see if we can get you a 500 to ride in many ways you know god if i'd been put on a proper 250 you know i I knew how to ride a 250 but it was getting on a 500 you know they had 160 brake horsepower 120 kilos but it was more they were just such a light switch i remember the Mm. big high side the first time i rode it coming out of melbourne loop because you just got it slightly wrong a millimeter too much throttle just a degree too much angle if they came on song just slightly wrong you know the first thing you know you're just upside down looking at the bike flying through the air but you know I got there didn't make a single mistake in practice or qualifying you know I came through to finish 13th at 19 you know I'd only been road racing like not even three years you know yeah, so yeah. you know it was an amazing opportunity to to get and um, I became the youngest ever point scorer in the, the premier class for, for the UK which held many years I think Leon took it off me you know sort of years later funny enough Leon has well, yeah, I was going to say that's poetic yeah. <laughs> yeah but it was great you know suddenly to be there with you know the boys Schwantz Duan was just incredible yeah so it was a, it was a really sort of great opportunity and I was a few seconds behind John Reynolds who was obviously you know a big name then and you know riding well that was the crazy race wasn't it James where Duan took Schwantz out at the end of the first lap which you yeah. presumably rode past that <laughs> at the end of the first yeah, lap yeah. going into the S's and what else happened Foggy ran out of petrol didn't he and the Kajiva yeah. On the last turn, yeah. pretty much, and, and of course, that was the famous race where Cadalora ignored Team Roberts' yeah. instructions and overtook Rainey, who was trailing Schwantz in the championship. Because I watched that race the other night. I think I mentioned to you on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Great race, that. Yeah, no, it was there was, there was a lot going on. It was just, yeah, it was just, a, it was an amazing opportunity, and and that kind of, and also it was great as well because they weren't doing anything. Also, I realised no one's doing anything. I can't do here. Um, yeah, my bike was, you know, it was even then the one they were still quite competitive. Then the V4s because they were relatively new. I think they'd come mm. out in 91 or 92. So they were just a couple of years old then. Whereas actually by the time I got to Grand Prix in 95, you know, by then they were like four or five years old. And, you know, I remember I was 24 kilometres an hour down on doing at Donington. Wow. Speed trap, you know, I qualified 1.1 seconds off him in 95 on the 500 when I had to come together with uh, Abbe at the Melbourne Loop again. Yeah, I mean, that, that was great. I, do you know what? It was those 500s were, when they were right and in their little but little window oh i mean they were so much fun to ride because they just span and slid you know mm. so easy and they loved to slide and you know you'd have your preloaded gesture on your handlebar because once the tar started to go that 
start pumping so you'd have to like stiffen the spring so you could slide it better and um, carbon brakes the yeah, unbelievable and obviously you, you know 21 years old I was doing the world championship you know traveling around you know, Brazil Australia Japan you yeah. know, it was great you know meeting lots of people so it was a good thing and you know I loved it and I was so dedicated and, and into it even then you know I had you know, best result of ninth in 500s yeah you know which was good that was in Spain you know I had some top 10s you know I, I was always banging on the door there was 14 I think or 12 or 14 factory bikes then so yeah the names were massive so you kind of but me McWilliams Emmett we were the sort of the boys at the front it was a great time taught me a lot I wish in a way that because 95 was brilliant I was on the Harris yeah and it was you know the, and Steve and Lester great guys you know Steve sadly passed away last year but yes yeah. it was a great fun team but it, the bike you know they didn't really have a lot of budget the bikes were getting a bit old so we had lots of sort of failures you know gearbox failures or just sort of things like that mm-hmm. but actually when we and we ran on Dunlop tires but when it was you know, also, it took me a while to get it to work how I needed it to work, you know, with pivot points and just so I could really have sort of fun with it. And when I did, though, I, I loved it. You know, I had it absolutely dialed in. And then you know, I, I'm 96, I went to WCM, but Dunlop pulled out. And so everyone had to run Michelins. And the Michelins that we got, you know, we were an English team. We were like yeah. as low down on the pecking order as you could get. The tyres were just dreadful. That 96 was was really tough because after 95, you know, I still had some top, top 10s and points of scoring wise, but I could never grab that bike by the scruff of the neck. Mm. You know, I ended up breaking my ankle in in Italy at Imola um, with, a, with a big crash because the front tire just wasn't working. That was that. That was the end of that year. And, um, and it was frustrating because that... It, threatened to be such a good year that WCM team also I thought was such a good team but yeah. they lost all their crew they were it was a very late deal for them to stay in the championship and it just wasn't run very well added to the Michelin tyres it was you know difficult year because you kind of just felt like you were riding round rather of course you're not you're trying your best but it was just that Michelin just couldn't make enough tyres so you yeah. just found what was left and very rarely did they ever suit the circuit you were at Again, people have to be of a certain vintage, like us or older, I suppose, to kind of recall back to those days where there was such a wide variety, wasn't there, in terms yeah. of the equipment and, as you say, tyres. I mean, we're sort of spoilt these days with effectively spec formulas, aren't we, where we, like Moto2, for example, it's the same engine. Yeah. You know, pretty much everybody's got the same chassis. They're all on the same tyres. Yeah. You know, we're sort of, it's an embarrassment of riches now, isn't it? But in your time, I mean, it was the haves and the have-nots, wasn't it, often? Yeah, very, very much. And it, you know, it's can sound like sour grapes but it's not it's just no, it's just the way it was isn't it what, what it was and you just had to sort of take it on the chin and, yeah. and hope you'd get something sort of coming up but you know we I never got again I never rode a, a decent one and that's why you know you, I used to watch some of these bikes and just like especially doing NSR you know when that thing would come past and you know it was you were just like oh my god I want that bike you know it was just, <laughs> just absolute sexy and you had that weird style with that sort of shoulder in and yeah I was marvelous at that actually when I was watching the Donington race the other night Mick Style on the bike was so different to everybody else wasn't it that yeah. kind of really sort of odd position that he put his bum in and as you say that that shoulder sort of held in whether that was a consequence of some of the injuries that he'd suffered perhaps and lack of movement maybe I don't know but it was very distinctive yeah very distinctive and you know he was head and shoulders above everyone then you know I know mm-hmm. like Cookville and certain people who gave them a, a hard time but when he came in with that bit of the 90s you know Schwantz won in 93 didn't he and then yeah. he was dominated 
motivated by doing and yeah, him on that bike and, and that Honda team and where the NSR was, he was the benchmark and generally Perfect storm. Yeah. he made it so boring, didn't he? Because he just would piss off at the front and get in his rhythm and, and away he'd go. But yeah, he was a he was a great, yeah, really yeah, he's a good bloke, Big Doing, and yeah, he deserved it. You know, he yeah. was a he was a proper you know, he was a machine and um yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to to be on track with him, you know. One thing I just wanted to pick up on, which again is very, very different to the modern era that we're in obviously now is that the different bikes that you were riding in say a, any given year which yeah. is just something you don't really see now because I, I noted that back in 1994 you won your first effectively let's call it a bsb race i think on a honda 750 would that have been yeah so you were yeah. sort of juggling you know two stroke 500s bsb sort of four stroke type equipment i'm incredible really looking back yeah no absolutely it was yeah i mean i started off the year you know stuart hicken met it was med racing and they bought the rc45s and that was the rc45 first ever win in the world oh, okay and um yeah i won by 18 and a half seconds you know in the wet in, at uh, snetterton and got my my first sort of win as you say yeah and then and then i to be honest we were struggling the bike was running penske suspension which was like a car make that were thinking about getting into bikes mm-hmm. it wasn't you know you can imagine it you know i didn't know enough as well to really you know i'd never ridden a, a super bike before you know, I jumped off the 250 and it just felt like this big wallowy <laughs> sort of, you know, thing. And, um, but yeah, we won that race, but, you know, I was crashing it a bit. And in the end, they just, we kind of just decided to both part company. Mm-hmm. And then I went to, I did some 250 races. I won, you know, the, all the rounds I did in the UK. And then I also got my first chance to do a Grand Prix outside the UK. And I went to Bruno. It was a Honda, but it was on Yokohama's. Everyone called him Yokohama's. <laughs> but, but, you know, I diced with a, a young man called Carlos Checker, all race. Mm. Uh, well, to him. <laughs> for the last point, and he just got me. So I finished 16th, he was 15th. But, the you know, that was, a again, a great feeling. Then we went to Laguna Seca, you know, and I had the mother of all high sides. Thank goodness there was air fence. I think I went from the track upside down at 110 mile an hour into the air fence and like they, the tire just let go. But yeah, again, great experience. What else? And then I think I also did in 94, I got a chance after the last year, some Italian team offered me a, a ride in the British Grand Prix again. And um, and that was going fine. I, I qualified really well. They'd never even been in the top 15 or whatever. And I was, you know, dicing on on that. And then in the race, came out of the Melbourne Loop, going up to Goddard's, nyeh, nyeh, hit the brake, nothing. Thing. Oh, no. I had time for like two pumps and everyone's peeling in. I just shot. I had to just go inside. I managed to shoot between the whole pack. <laughs> massive, massive crash. Like the bike was written off. Yeah, because there's not much runoff there, is there? <laughs> no, not, not at all. And like, you know, once I got through, I had to just jump off the back of it and then it just somersaulted, hit the barrier. It was like a nightmare. And then they wanted to try and sue me for some of the money. And I was like, well, your brakes failed. You know, the <laughs> yeah. brakes completely failed. You know, it was scary. It was the first time I'd ever had a brake failure. But the bike was so badly mangled they couldn't tell and they were saying well no you know it was you that made an accident but luckily also 25 people had seen me shoot up there inside and scare the shit out of them you know mm. it, was, it was just nothing I could do and also that speed you just don't have a lot you know I had time for two or three you know maybe two pumps bang bang and then yeah. you hit the, you, you're through you've got to like make that decision I just managed by a bit of luck and a bit of skill not to take out you know anyone <laughs> and um, that was 94 but again you know and I'd done enough for at the end of that year Steve Harris approached me and said you know let's you know, come do some Grand Prix, which was, yeah. was absolutely brilliant You've already sort of described how, so 95 with Harris as a, I, I guess we call it a privateer entry in the GP500 class. And then similarly with WCM 
yeah. in 96. How come, I believe you had offers to stay in GP500s, but you ended up switching across to the World Superbike paddock, didn't you? With a, I did write it down, Jacko Moto, was yeah, it? Jacko Moto, yeah. And, and it was kind of, I could see... You know, it'd be nice to stay in Grand Prix, but I could kind of see what I was up against because the bikes were getting uncompetitive then. You know, you were often 20, 25 kilometres an hour down, mm. you know, proper 500s. And, and it just wasn't quite enough. You know, people, I know a lot of people were just very happy just to be in Grand Prix. I'm in Grand Prix, I'm going to stay here, it doesn't matter. But it, was, it wasn't enough for me. And this Italian team approached me and you know, said, do you want to come ride this bike? And, and Paolo Casali had been riding it the year before. Oh, yeah. And, and I was like, absolutely, yeah, it sounds brilliant. So I rode his bike, but I think his was a 95. And so when I got to the team and we went testing, I rode what, what he had, and I absolutely loved it. Broke the lap record at Cartagena. It was just lovely. It was great. And I thought, do you know what? I'm going to have a bloody good year. Then we got to the first race and they'd sold it and they'd got me like a pair of the last year's bikes. I think it was 96 that they went. It was the, the bad year for Foggy on the Ducati because yeah. they went too rigid with the chassis. Mm-hmm. And it just, it just felt awful. You know, and I didn't know, no one really knew too much at the time, but the, the bike I'd ridden in all over the winter, which I loved, had gone. And then, oh my God, that team was just a disaster. You know, I think I had like, yeah, 18 breakdowns, you know, it, fairings coming off, handlebars coming loose, just, you know, oil leaks, clutches going. You know, we finally blagged a decent engine and they started it up at Mazzano and they forgot to put any oil in it. Oh, they seized God. it. I, like, the, you know, they see this brand new engine, you know, locked up. I had so many problems with them. And in the end, we were at Albacete and I was going into, there's a really fast left, it's like flat in fourth. You just kind of go near fourth, shut the throttle, bang, and you're on. And as I did it, the handlebar just went like shot forward, yeah. completely loose, against the fair and picked up. I mean, I just managed to stay on. And literally, I stopped. I just chucked it down. I went back to my motorhome. I had all my gear on, helmet, everything, unplugged the leads. I left my scooter by the garage because it was their scooter. I got in my mm. motorhome and I like took my helmet off. I was still in my leathers. Just drove out the paddock and I just drove away. They phoned me like a, an hour later. James, where are you? And I was like, you can stick that thing up your ass. <laughs> I said, for God's sake, you nearly killed me for about yeah. the 10th time. I'm not riding it anymore. I'm done. That's it. So that was it. I kind of quit that and I was just, it was the most hideous year. And it, and it was really hard as well because I was watching a lot of these guys, you know, with the Hodgson, you know, I was watching these guys you know, these were guys I knew I could race with. Yeah. The bike was just so uncompetitive. And as it turned out, it was that 96 model that was just disastrous. And they changed it completely again for 97. It was just, if we'd just managed to stay with that old bike, I think we'd have had a, an amazing year. Yeah. Another case of right place, wrong time. Yeah, exactly. And it was kind of like, and, that, and that's, you know, I've had a little bit of that sometimes, and it's, but it is kind of what it was. But, but that team... They put a, an injunction against me in the Italian court because also I was sponsored at the time and Fast Bikes, who I re, re, were sponsoring me, and they had agreed to pay 25 grand, you know, as part of the deal. Mm-hmm. And then they never, because the bike was so shit and they were having problems all the time, they never paid. So so the team put an injunction against me. When I came back to Italy, like for Foggy Petronas, sort of, you know, in 2003, yeah. you know, I was met by like a legal representative and basically I had to pay 
25 grand or I wasn't allowed to write. And from, from that day, and I was like, oh, okay. So I mean, I did, it was all right. I just, you know, but it was like bloody annoying. But, you know, the glamour of international racing, you know, this is all the shenanigans that goes on that people never really hear about. No, yeah, that's right. And Crazy, it was, isn't it? Yeah, and it was, you know, it was one of those ones. And I, I remember saying to the guys at Fast Bikes, like, well, you know, even you know, before when they said, look, because it came through them, really, this opportunity as well. It was someone that they knew. And it should have been, as I say, it should have been a, a good year, but it wasn't. That was that, but it ended up costing me, myself, 25 grand years later, which was a bit of an expensive learning experience. I guess you'd have to chalk that <laughs> one down to then. I mean, you've kind of answered this question already, but one thing that occurred to me with you having gone across, I mean, you've been racing four strokes in Britain anyway, I know, but having spent that two years in the GP500 paddock and then jumped onto the World Superbike, albeit it wasn't a particularly fruitful, enjoyable year, but was it already evident to you at that point that two strokes were kind of on their way out? Because, of course, this was the period when World Superbike was, I think, much better and so probably yeah. bigger globally than gp500 was yeah I, you know it was funny we were obviously you know in the uk it was massive it was the foggy years you know going to brands yeah. having the huge crowds and uh you know it was really on the pinnacle then and also because doom was making 500s look boring yeah and it wasn't so much you know for me i just you know i really wanted to be on the world stage but i wanted to try and be on something competitive I didn't want to be bringing money. I didn't want to be, you know, so I wanted to be earning money. I, I wanted yeah. to, to try and do it in a different way. And it just, in the Grand Prix, you know, even then, you know, a lot of the guys had big sponsorship, which enabled them to do stuff. And we didn't have that. So I kind of, World Superbikes looked like a, I thought it would be, easier to be competitive you know in world superbikes than it would in in uh, otherwise but you know after that year you know it was like i say it was such a, a dreadful year and i just you know i got out i mean i did i had so many injuries from the from the bike you know just silly stuff you know like mm. forgetting to put your tire warmer on you know and out you go in your tire warmers weren't on and you know you come out of the pits and get to the first corner and suddenly yeah. you're, you're off it and you're like what and then it was like that was weird something on my tire no oh no they're stone cold you know and you th- oh sorry oh, we didn't realize you know it just it was just the guy that ran my side he used to work in a lambretta like shop in in milan right and it was right. like he'd never run a super bike it was just you know i mean like again though i mean he's you know i actually got my i think my best result i mean I, i'm not sure i got a top 10 on that but i got you know I, I scored lots of points on it i think maybe i did it was what it was but after that year i just like i thought you know what i've had enough of riding around and like dicing for 10th if everything goes unbelievably well mm. so I thought I'd much rather I'd come back to the UK and Paul Denning had started the Suzuki team he offered me a you know a package with a salary and you know a car and motocross bike and you know and I thought that's much better and um, you know I, I came out and I finished third in the, the first race on the podium yeah. back in BSB and um, you know I was teammates with Terry Reimer yeah. he's a great guy good yeah. blood he was uh, he was teaching me the, uh, the ins and outs of, of being BSB and um, having a good laugh. And it was just suddenly I was like, you know, it, it was just, it was nice. I missed, you know, not being on the world stage, but suddenly, you know, I could compete. And then Suzuki that year, it was the mini disc year 98. It wasn't great. You know, I won a race at Snet, had lots of podiums, but it was, it was still a little bit uncompetitive. Was that the Clarion branded bike that year? No, no, the Clarion was... The 98 was the Sony Mini Disc branded bike. Oh, okay, right. The MTV in 99 was the Clarion. Ah, oh, okay. But yeah, the 99 bike was, yeah, it was a new model, much better. Yeah, and I won more races than anyone else in a four cylinder that year. You know, 99, it was, you know, I won four races and lots of podiums. You know, you're racing your Baylesses and Hodgson's and Walkers and Reynolds and Emmett's. And, you know, yeah. it was also a great time. There was stuff full of big names, but it was, it was enjoyable. But it, I also, it was, it was the years of, 
you know, the Ducati had been a thousand, you were on a seven fifty, and those things were just you were fine on top speed once you got there, but their mm. punch off the corners was just different gravy, and they could really ruin your lines. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was nice to come back. Like I say, ninety nine, the bike was was a lot better. You know, I really enjoyed ninety nine. Yeah, it was good fun. Yeah, you know, I was earning good money. You know, it was nice. I was having a, a nice lifestyle, and um, you know, enjoying myself. And then in two thousand, were you onto the Ducati in the year two thousand? Yeah, so it was just, you know, I just thought, I've got to get on a Ducati. You can't beat them, join them sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, exactly that. And I could just see that they were the bike to have. So I I went on the Ducati, and the first time I rode it, I was like, you cheating bastards. (laughs) I I could not believe I'd been up against it. I was teammates with John Reynolds. Yeah. And, you know, it, it was it was brilliant. I loved that bike. You know, again, I won a lot of races. I think I won four or five races that year. Lots of podiums. I was leading the championship, you know, in about August still. And then I was in, I was with my manager and we were going down the M1. There was a big car crash in front of us and, and we stopped just before us. There was about 10, 12 cars. And I turned around because I was worried. And as I turned around, we got hit from behind. And I didn't know it at the time, but I'd prolapsed a disc in my neck from the accident, like the whip lash yeah and um i just suddenly started like we got to the next round it was like Alton park and you know my my arm just kept going dead you know and i was i was out in the lead and and i i just could not feel my arm i was having to like roll the throttle with my arm to keep it flat down the straight and i just i I couldn't work out what happened it took a while you know i didn't tell anyone because i didn't uh, the team knew my dad knew obviously but I didn't want it to get out because I didn't want people to know that I had this really bad weakness. So it took a long while before we got diagnosed with what it was. And I had this disc that was impinging on my spinal cord and giving right. me this referred pain down my arm. Yeah. That cost me that championship that year. Yeah. It was such a good year. Obviously, everyone remembers it for the you know, Walker, Hodgson. Um, yeah, yeah. But to be honest, you know, it was only those last few rounds where I'd really sort of struggled. And once I got it sorted, I had to just go into a load of physiotherapy and do these exercises to like a bar of soap to push it back and get the release off the spinal cord and um that worked and then by you know, the last couple of races or the last race i think i was back to being sort of normal again yeah me and reynolds didn't get on very well i was going to ask you about i mean i know it's, it's sort of famous that you had a fairly um uh i don't know what the correct or polite word would be yes, but uh, uh, a fairly competitive season with each other um <laughs> yeah very much and and it's kind of you know i'm, I'm great friends with john now he's, he's a lovely guy yeah but back then he did, did a couple of moves to me you know at Alton Park and we fell out over them because he put me on the curbs on the inside coming over Clay Hill mm-hmm. and I like lost the front it picked up and I was lucky to save it but you could get killed there I'm all up for racing hard whatever but you know I felt he'd crossed a line you know so that kind of put us at loggerheads and he was unhappy with like I had a journalist from MCM do an interview and I can't remember what it was but the guy had kind of taken something out of context and so we really you know, we really didn't get on. You know, I'd had this sort of lull while I was getting over this neck injury. And then I came back and I could still win the championship, theoretically, but I needed some, you know, some stuff to happen. And and they'd asked me to finish behind John at Brands Hatch. It was in the pouring rain. And there was about seven of us dicing for, I think it was third. Yeah. And John came past me at Druids. And then he just ran me straight on the onto the curb. It was pouring rain. My front lock slid off, gripped again on the thing. And I was like you you know what i mean mm-hmm. so I was like so then we diced and um we uh we had a, a real ding dong and i beat him but it was also it was rutter was in it there was it was so hard 
to know because you're in a line, you know, it's going to make the difference and finishing sort of third or fourth or tenth, eleventh, you know. So yeah. <laughs> it was really hard to judge. It wasn't just like I could just wave him through, you know. And a couple of times I did, and then he'd give me a horrific move back. So in the end, I was just thought, you know what, this is an impossible race to try and control this. Like, yeah, yeah. Because sometimes he was five places behind me. Sometimes then he was in front of me, and then he runs wide. And so anyway, I beat him, and then I Ben Atkins who was the owner. You know, again, they're all lovely guys the heat at the moment but we had a, a massive argument and he uh, he was went and gone mad at Joe and, and whatever and then you know so when we got back I just wasn't taking any crap either and I was <laughs> like I'm sorry but that's where it is so um that kind of what happened then he's like right you're not riding yeah that's it you're not riding anymore Roger Marshall who was the team manager and what a brilliant bloke he is you know he managed to kind of kind of get it sort of calmed down and then we went to the next race at, Brown, at Donington Park which is the final round of the year you know and he's like if you've got to finish behind John to try and help him for the championship so that's what I did in race one you know I finished behind John he was third I was fourth mm-hmm. and then the final race of the year they said you've got to finish behind John again and I was like well it's the final race of the year right what are you going to do <laughs> anyway, so I went out and won that and beat John <laughs> and that was that on the hindsight, if I could change something, I wouldn't have done that at the brands. You know, I, I should have just lost those places. It was just, I thought also, if there'd been an incident where, you know, Walker and Hodgson had taken each other out or whatever, you know, I'd have been, you know, I'd have been sort of straight back in it. So I, I still wanted yeah. to try and get in it. But that cost me my, you know, I'd already done a deal to go with INS Ducati the next year to World Superbikes. Oh, okay. And basically, Colin White said, no, if you can't follow team orders, you're not having it. Mm. So I went to a young man called James Tosland instead. Yes. And um, you know the, the rest is history. So you know, was that one of my opportunities? Probably. So then, 2001, it was really hard because I wanted to stay under Ducati after having ridden them and just how good they were and the advantages they had. Because James, can I just ask? In 2000, was was that the Reve Racing Red Bull? Yeah, Red Bull. That yeah. beautiful blue Red Bull livery yeah. bike. Oh yeah, it, it was a great team. And listen, I you know, I'd lot to thank for them. But it was yeah, the whole team was based around John Reynolds. You know, it was for John. John named his son Ben after Ben Atkins, who owned it. And, you know, so it was a very sort of yeah. insidious sort of little family thing. And they actually turned out they didn't want two number one riders. They wanted John as number one. They wanted a like a B rider who would not be quite competitive yeah. and whatever. But that wasn't me. You know, I'd have happily finished behind sort of some people if I'd really needed to. You know, back then you didn't hear much of team orders. Mm. You know, it wasn't something that came into effect much. Also, I remembered Hodgson the year before at Brands pulling over to let Bayliss come through and he got booed and, you know, it was like, it, you know, the fans hated it. And, yeah. and it was sort of one of those ones. But if I could have done it in an easy way, I would have done, but I couldn't. You know, I hated him then and he hated me. You know, whereas like I say now, he's a lovely guy, you know what I mean? But he put his helmet on, he was a bloody axe murderer. But yeah. then again, we all were, you know, that was the nature was of the, the game. game. Yeah. So, it, it, yeah, that, that affected that. Then the next year... After, you know, I was going well through bikes and obviously when I lost that, you know, then I, I did a deal with Rob Mack to ride the, the R7 yeah. bike, which was the absolute opposite of a Ducati. It had no bottom end at all. And on a clear track, you know, it reminds me of, in many ways, when I watched Quattararo last year, you know, he's got a bike that's not the fastest. He does it. And if he can ride his own lines without anyone, he can be fast. But if he's suddenly held up by someone and they're blocking the way he sweeps through the apex, he can't ride his bike in the same way. Mm. And my R7 was exactly like that on a clear track. You know, I could put it on pole, but actually in the race, if you had a Ducati, you know, at the wrong place, and then it'd go bang, and you know, it would take you the rest of the lap to get back on them. Yeah. It was a really, but it was a beautiful thing to ride. I loved that bike. It was one of my favorite bikes. 
bikes, but it was gutless. It didn't have any power compared mm. to Ducatis, but it was a, a beautiful thing. And I think we had like 18 or 20 podiums that year. I should have won a race. I crashed at uh, Mallory um, when I was in the lead, which I should have won, which was annoying, but I didn't. And that was that. And it, But it, I had such a good year. And at the end of that year, I had so many offers. And I signed to go to uh, Foggy Patronus, which... I wish I'd never, ever done. Okay, that was my next question, because I'm sort of conscious that we need to sort of move on through the career bit of this. So, yeah, so 2002 and 2003 was the Foggy Patronus project, let's call it. I was never quite sure quite how involved or invested Carl Fogarty was in that whole thing. Maybe that's something, if it's not too contentious to talk about, but happy you tried or sort of waste of peak Hayden career complete waste of peak Hayden career yeah. out of all the things yeah I listen I earned loads of money but it was worth nothing because mm. I was so unhappy and you know I, I was at a peak of my career and it kind of cost me yes why it helped set me up but it was irrelevant right then and I thought it was going to be completely different basically mm. and what we originally signed for I was going to be doing all this testing on the they developed this motor GP bike as well alongside Patronus yeah the Neil McKenzie had tested and he said it's just an absolute weapon you know he said it's superb and um and i kind of you know so i was meant to do you know they reckon you're going to do like six or eight thousand miles testing in 2002 uh and then racing 2003 but the whole thing was was just a joke it had you know there was all this money but god knows where it all went i mean we had like all these amazing trucks and hospitality but mm. we didn't even have a suspension technician you know mm. there are eight thousand euros for molins in rider right and it was like you know it was fur coat and no knickers and i i mean i got like where do you even start on that well the thing was constantly trying to burn you to death wasn't it for one oh, thing God, it was just hideous and um you know i listen i got best result of seventh of it in japan um you know i was the first person to score points on it but you know the thing was just awful and it was just a such a terrible after a year 2002 the year i had off carl harris broke both his legs at alton park and they just moved to the thousands and suzuki pulled down and phoned me up said james come and ride for us he's out for a long while mm. come and ride and i so i got in touch with carl and i said look this is brilliant you know what i can do i'm gonna go and ride i'm gonna ride the opposition i'm gonna keep fresh you know and carl wouldn't let me he's like no you're not doing it and then basically we tried to it went legal but i just couldn't do it without this huge you know the contract was like that it was next patronus formula one contract and mm. i couldn't get out of it and i begged him i said look Carl, I'm actually getting depressed here. I can't ride. I'm at my peak. All I want to do is race motorbikes. Please, please, you have all your money back. Just let me go. But you wouldn't do it. Mm. So that cost me, you know, that, that, that was really hard. And then the next year, they ended up, you know, it took ages. The bikes were terrible. I, and actually, I just got to a stage. We had, we had, we had one set of decent Michelins and then we had the other rider had like these ones that were actually like four years old because Michelin had pulled out but Carl had done a deal just before the start we should have been on Dunlops but he did this deal with Michelins and they said look whoever's fastest in practice in the first session gets the decent tyres well the tyres were worth over a second a lap yeah and, uh, more like two seconds in some places they were the first of the radial tyres and they were left over from the Bayliss Edwards battle. Yep. Mm -hmm. They only had enough to supply one rider. And then the other rider had to have the ones from the year before. So they were like three years old. Mm. Rubbish. And Chuck Bomb was Troy done all the circuits. So often we'd get there and, and, and he'd get them. And we got to Brands and it was the first time I'd actually out qualified him in the first session. So I was like, brilliant. You know, where's my tires? Oh, you're not having them. Well, why not? Because Troy's higher up in the championship. So I went mad. Right. I went to see Carl and Carl just said, 
I'm not really interested. He said, sorry, I'm more of a figurehead. You know, I was like, Carl, I've put my whole career on the line for you. You know, please don't do this. And uh, so that was disappointing. Listen, Carl's Carl, you know, he was an amazing rider. But, you know, that was a hideous year. The bike was completely uncompetitive. And actually, I just, it just kept going wrong, kept blowing up. You know, the gearbox locked up in Germany, third gear, the selected broke. And I had this horrific accident. I ruptured the thing. I damaged that neck, that prolapsed disc again. And I couldn't make the next race because I couldn't, you know, my neck, neck was in a really bad way. Mm. And then they deducted me that, you know, I can't remember any rounds. There were 13 rounds. So they, then they deducted me one thirteenth of my salary for missing the next one, even though it was their gear that <laughs> broke up and, and stuff like that. And then, I just thought, also, I just then I, I started just not being able to match Troy. And I started thinking, do you know what? For the first time ever, I thought, maybe I'm not very good. Maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. And uh, it was really difficult. And then we went to Magni Corps to test before the, the last round. Troy wasn't there for some reason. And they brought in like this guy from the British Championship, who's Jamie, and I can't remember his name right now. But my bike, I went out, my bike, first engine went on lap one, went back, got the other bike, that went like two laps later, and they had no choice but to give me one of Troy's engines. So they put it in. Oh, my God. It was... Different bike, was it? It was a different bike. I went 1.7 seconds quicker. Right? And I came in, and I put... Nigel Bosworth up against the wall because I'm like what the hell what I said I can't believe I've been racing why the hell you know we I've been on the same stuff why the hell he goes oh we haven't got enough to run both of you you didn't need to know you know la 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 and I was like I just said you know I'd had all this self-doubt I just and I said I've been racing that piece of crap when there's an engine like this I was just disgusted when you think of what they were paying you to be in that team why not just let you race somewhere else and just run a one-bike team for Corsa yeah it was just you know and it was yeah that was really uplifting actually because it was great and then when we got there because they had no more you know I had to run they had no more engines in time so I had to run Corsa's engines so I out-qualified Corsa for the first time that year I think I qualified seventh or eighth and then I got taken out on the second turn. Someone, one of the Kawasaki riders just got stuck in my back wheel and took me out in the second one. Um, oh, sorry, in the first race. So that was on lap one. So that was really frustrating. And in the second race, you know, I was having a nice race and then the bike went wrong and that was that. But it made me leave on a high because I knew actually this is not me. I just mm. I was so gutted and disappointed that I was made, you know, it just, and I'll, I'll never forgive them for that. Yeah. And actually, as I say, it didn't matter. All the money in the bloody world, it was just completely irrelevant. Mm. And actually at the end of it, for the first time ever, I'd been head over heels in love and obsessed with motorcycles. But after that, I kind of loved bikes, but I wasn't so in love with them anymore. Mm. And I, there was times when I just thought that bike was going to kill me. You know, and I said to Joe, and it was weird because before that Germany accident when the gearbox locked up, you know, I was in the airport and I just burst into tears. I was like, I said, you know what? This bike's going to kill me, Joe. I said, it's, it's not. I, I don't like it. I don't want to race. She's like, don't be silly. It'll be fine. You know, we got there and then I had this massive accident, nearly broke my neck. Mm. And also, twice I jumped out to jump off it in practice because it used to leak or fill the airbox but it would run perfectly wouldn't miss a beat and the first thing you'd know would be it would fill the airbox and then the oil would go on the tyre and if you were lucky you'd save it that first time yeah. but if you weren't 
you know, you could be off, and then as soon as you got to the exhaust, it would just burst into flames. Yeah. You know, I think I jumped off it five or six times in flames that year, you know, fully in flames. You know, I started wearing a little fireproof socks and little fireproof thing because it was just, you know, suddenly you were just engulfed in flames. And um, so it kind of came out of that, and I was like, I didn't even know if I wanted to ride anymore. It's kind of, James, it sort of strikes me, and I'm not saying this in any way to sound glib, but it's almost like a form of PTSD in a way coming out of that experience, wasn't it? Because it yeah. taken you to such a crushing low in terms of your confidence. Yeah, and I was living in Andorra and I was really isolated as well. It was kind of like, it's not like everyone's there now, but, you know, I, I was the only English guy there, mm. you know, Richard Burns, and that was, you know, and that, that was it, you know, and it was sort of, you know, I just became really low, you know, I just thought of this thing that I'd liked, I just had a year off, you know, I felt like the clock was ticking and, and also it was just so disappointing to be on, on something that was so uncompetitive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And what obviously Hodgson won the world championship that year, you know, my old rival, you yeah. know, basically in motocross in mini stocks in, you know, 500s and super bikes. And, you know, he was running away and I couldn't even. Just to rub salt into the wounds. Yeah. Couldn't even get near it. And don't get me wrong, I love Neil. He's one of my best friends in racing. He's just a superb guy. So I was happy for him. But at the same time, it was like, you know, that year I was just, I couldn't believe this golf had opened. You know, I knew I could yeah. race with him on the same equipment. I knew I could be up to fun dicing for a world champion. And so at the end of that year, I just, I didn't know what I wanted. You know, I was like, I wasn't sure I wanted to race bikes anymore. I didn't phone anyone. I just sort of escaped away. I just said, come on, Joe, we just got some backpacks and we just went around Thailand for months. And we just hung out on little islands and just chilled out. And um, I'd had such a bad year and I hated it so much. I just didn't know if I wanted to race bikes again. Mm. And then I decided, look, I do. Of course I do. I love my racing motorbikes. So I just sort of came back. You know, I decided, look, I don't know. I, I wasn't very happy. I, you know, I was probably drinking a little bit too much now and again. So I thought well, I'll just give up alcohol. So I just gave up alcohol for that next year. And I didn't have a ride because everything had taken on. I hadn't phoned a single person or done anything. My phone hadn't been ringing for yeah. the first time ever in my yeah. career. And then I got like an offer to to go to BSB on a Ducati. Stuart Easton was riding it. He got injured. So yeah, I came back and I think we finished like sixth and eighth in the races. But the bike, you know, I, I didn't have the bike feeling very nice. And then Steve Plater broke his, had a bad accident on the Yamaha. Mm-hmm. The Yamaha phoned me up and said, come back. And I'd missed the first three rounds or four rounds. No, three rounds, I think. But I was really in a good mental place. I was really fit and um, got on it. And it took me a long while to get that bike right because it was awful. They had Gary Mason, Steve Plater, and the bikes had just gone off in a really weird development line. And it took me a while to get it working right again, get the get the pivot point right, get the offsets right. And it got all balanced up. And This was the R1, wasn't it, now? Not the R7. The R1, so yeah. we're on the litre bike now. Yeah. Yeah. And do you know what? We had a... So we had nine. We missed the first three. Had nine rounds. What a brilliant year that was! Mm. And yeah, you know, we won a race. You know, got lots of podiums. I didn't. Also, Rob Mack retired. I've got it in my garage. The whole body work because I didn't have a single crash. Not in practice. Not in qualifying. Not in a race. No, not one. It was the only year I just I didn't have <laughs> one accident. And actually, the body work was just correct. You know, all the stones figured out. He goes, I can't believe I'm giving you all this body work and it's not broken. <laughs> or I've got to put on new stuff, but you've worn it out. It's worn <laughs> out from you. So, uh, so I've still. Still got all that my tail unit and all, all the fairing in the, in the garage but um yeah so it was a great year you know and yeah. then they, said, they said look come and ride for us you know we had had a great year ride for us next year but then colin wright came back and said james listen i've always wanted you come and ride for me two-year deal on the airways to Ducatis, teammates with haslam first year bsb second year world superbikes right it was like yes and i was like oh you know after all that work the highs the lows it suddenly felt like this is it this is what my whole career 
I've, I've got to just give the listeners a, a warning because there's another crushing disappointment coming up now. So yeah. let's have the last crowning turd in the water pipe uh, moment then. Yeah. So and then I broke my in, when we were testing in Spain. I had a really weird high side, and my hand got trapped. And these two fingers, they when I stopped, they're out the side here. Oh, and it smashed all my hand, my knuckles, and they were out the side. And it was before the first round. And I, and I oh my god, I was flying on this thing. I loved it, and uh, the team were amazing. And and I was like, anyway, I went I, I went to see the hand specialist, and the first guy said, look, you, you're going to be out months and months and months so i saw another specialist who said look you know we could do this we can do that you know he said look you're it's a bad injury if you kind of come try and come back too soon basically you might have a hand that's gonna be very troublesome your whole life mm. but he said, if you can give me like if, and it worked out if i could miss the first one i would just be about right right i could get it with the with the surgery that they needed so but it was stupid of me. I was like so naive again because I just thought after all this time, two year deal, I just didn't even think. What I should have done is said, no, it's all fine. Got to the first race, done a lap and said, oh no, I can't race and come back in. Then that would have been that. But I didn't. I said, look, I need to miss the first race to get my hand in. They brought in the Via. The Via finished second and third and was leading the championship. And they went, right, that's that. It's over. You're sacked. And I was like, what? I just couldn't believe, you know, a two-year deal missing one. I just I just couldn't believe it. But it's, you know, it's a cutthroat sport. You know, I get it. But yeah. then they were like, no, we're not paying you. And I was like, what? You know, but actually I took them to court and won because I had a proper contract yeah and I beat him in court and got my salary but it just suddenly then it was the same bloody thing mm. yeah, then I was without a ride every ride was taken and it was a typical year when no one really got injured and uh, in the end Smart Suzuki had Scott Smart and John Reynolds they weren't getting on with Smart so they released him so I stepped into that okay James we're back just for the benefit of the listeners, we've had a slight hiatus of um, just three days uh, because you had a load of kitchens turn up, which is something we'll touch on the reasons for that perhaps right at the very end. Um, but just to recap, to try and neatly sort of segue this together, I think we just had spoken about the fact that the Airwaves deal fell through in, and that was meant to take you through 2004-2005, wasn't it? Yeah. And that brought you into the Rizla Suzuki squad. And I think the last thing you said before we had to quickly sort of take this pause was that Scott Smart had fallen out with the Rizla Suzuki BSB team. So you kind of slotted in there. Yeah, it was kind of funny because he was obviously teammates with John Reynolds again. And, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, But we'd both, you know, a lot of water had gone under the bridge. We were both a lot more mature then. And actually, you know, that, that was fine. That team had changed quite a lot. It used to be run by Paul Denning. Mm-hmm. Paul Denning had gone on to World Championship and it had a guy called, um, anyway, I don't need to mention names, but it was sort of the guy that came in, wasn't experienced. He'd never run a bike team before. You know, he was from powerboat racing. Really, it suffered a little bit from that. They kind of went down a funny route. But, you know, I got some podiums, put it on pole at Brands and, um, you know, it wasn't too bad. I did enough to get a deal the, the next year. I didn't really enjoy the next year I was with Shane Byrne. I liked my bike as I started off with. I think the first round was Altman, me, Shaky, Leon Haslam and one other. It might have been Reynolds. All four of us finished within 0.5 of a second, you know, for the win. I was actually in fourth annoyingly, but um, (laughs) it was all good. We got to the next round and they developed a... It was the first time in moving the fuel tanks from the fuel tank to a central fuel cell. Yeah. Stuart Johnson worked for them. Very clever guy. Changed it all. And we went to the test and I was like two seconds slower. 
and I just couldn't get it. And I was like, we went to Ireland next. And I said, well, don't bring me that bike. Bring me my old bike back. Shaky refused to ride it. And um, he said, no, I'm not riding it till it's as good as what we've got. But I got to the next one and they bought both the bikes for me like that. And I really struggled with that motorcycle. I'll be honest with you, it didn't, I didn't really like it. I couldn't quite get on with it. And yeah, it was a, it was sort of a, a funny old year. I think I got injured a little bit towards the end. I had a brake, so that's why I had my brakes fail at Snetterton. Oh, yeah, which I had a really bad accident. And me and uh, Dean Harris, the Australian, and um, God, so my mind's going, now. it's bad, isn't it? I can't. <laughs> well, it was quite some time ago. I mean, I know we're sort of winding down on the full-time bike riding career. And we're going to sort of segue into what you've done next, which is equally impressive and worthy of discussion. But before we get off the bikes, I must just very, very briefly ask you about the fact that you're one of a very select few people. In 2004, I think, you got to ride the Kenny Roberts KR5 yep, MotoGP no. bike. So maybe not spend too much time talking about exactly how that came about, but you rode in, I think, Qatar, Phillip Island and Valencia, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and right. What was it like to ride? you know a full-blown MotoGP bike I mean that's yet another classic bike yeah. I, I know it wasn't an RCV 211V in yeah. terms of the V5 four stroke but nevertheless yeah it was yeah I mean listen it, I mean it was a great team you know there's it, always interesting yeah, that was the one uh, Qatar Grand Prix that was done in the day so it was absolutely sweltering yeah I mean, the hottest hardest race I ever did and I can't remember I, I think I finished 12th you did I looked it up yeah yeah so I finished 12th and I um, you know I was top privateer I was a few seconds back on Kagiyama was on the factory Suzuki mm-hmm. and it, but I didn't I, I couldn't quite you know it, it didn't ever feel like my own I came off a super bike it was disappointing power wise compared to what the, the top guys were running mm-hmm. but the team were great you know it was great to ride for, for Kenny it was great to you know I was sort of you know obviously I was top privateer which was always something you know my first MotoGP obviously I'd done 500 Grand Prix many years before Yeah, it was I really struggled with the front end feel on it you know I couldn't quite get it what I wanted and you know they're very funny Grand Prix and not really allowing you if it'd been a super bike kind of said right you know I want to jack the rear up a little bit I want to try and take some oil out the forks to try and I just couldn't feel the bottom but they were like no 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 they had very strict parameters and you know I kind of I felt like I, I might have finished there but I just kind of felt a bit like I rode round rather than raced round mm-hmm. you know obviously we were racing and um, it was disappointing because I couldn't quite ride it how I wanted to ride it yeah. but again it was listen, a great opportunity I'm not going to begrudge you know going and doing some Grand Prix you know finishing top privateer my first MotoGP on the four strokes and a few years after I rode Bautista's factory Rizla Suzuki okay 240 or 50 brake horsepower then and that really was something special you know compared to the to that bike you know it just has so much power I just wanted to wheelie in every gear flip itself out but it was so light and nimble and the gear changes you know that really was a, a very special motorcycle but Kenny's one it was a lovely thing but it, even then it wasn't really competitive yeah but it was yeah it was a, it was a great opportunity and, and yeah so it kind of yeah but listen I went from there you know to the end and, and it just kind of at the end I, I just got I'll be honest with you I just you know I'd sort of done it we'd had a load of knocks you know I was starting to get on you know un- uncompetitive stuff I I kind of signed again for, for Rob Mackin on the Yamaha we were we went to Pirelli tyres when everyone else was on Michelins and yeah. Dunlops and they were awful back then you know the original Pirelli tyres were horrific I broke two screens of Brands Hatch just getting fired through it because the rear tyre just would collapse with no warning and I said to Rob, look, I can't, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to get me off these tyres. I can't ride on these Pirellis. I was next to a young Tommy Hill. Yeah, of who course. Who obviously had never ridden a superbike, didn't know any better. 
for me, because I knew what a tyre should feel like and could feel like, you know, I really struggled with it. And I said, look, Rob, if you're going to, if you're not going to change. And the difference was normally a tyre bill was 20 grand a rider. You know, he was being paid 30 grand. And so, mm. you know, he was, uh, he was obviously, uh, you know, sort of 70, 80 grand better off. And I just said, look, if that's going to be that, I'm not going to bother. And so we kind of parted ways. I went, then did a few rides with Hawk. I finished Top Kawasaki in the, the rides that I did, enough to offer me a, a ride in 2008. Yeah. And so I signed for Hawk in 2008 and then the credit crunch hit but no one knew what the credit crunch was at the time and uh, and basically cut long story short Stuart phoned me up Stuart Hicken and said look I don't know what's going on but we're losing all our sponsors you know will you, will you be prepared to forfeit your salary and I was like no you know I don't ride for free um, you know I'm a professional rider I've got kids and houses and bits and bobs and you know I'm a professional motorcycle racer you're not asking the mechanic to ride for free or the, the team manager and, and I'm not riding for free and he said well in that case you know you're not going to ride We've got a rider that's going to bring some money. You know, and like I said, I had helmets sprayed and leathers and all my deals done and my personal deals of motorhomes. And I was like, wow. And then I got offered loads of stuff, but not in Superbike. And it was quite funny that year because no one got injured anyway, right? You know, not in the world, not in American Championship, not in British Championship. And I got loads of super stock and super sport. And the trouble is, I'd only ever ridden Grand Prix bikes and Superbikes. Yeah. And that's what I liked. I liked riding the best stuff. I liked riding the best teams. And, and Eurosport said, look, they phoned me up. Look, James, while you're... And I said, look, I'm not retiring. I'm, 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 you know, I'm racing motorbikes. And they said, look, just come and do a couple of rounds with us until you get a ride. And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. And the money disappeared overnight in 2000. Yeah. The prize money went, you know, there was no money. It all just disappeared. And, you know, I was actually probably doing better off working for Eurosport than I was most of the guys racing bikes. And uh, which seemed ridiculous to me. But anyway, it was kind of what it was and and I didn't really I just suddenly felt you know I was feeling like a bit burnt out I was feeling a little just I don't know it wasn't quite doing what it had always done to me and um and I and I was kind of thinking well you know the, the worst thing was you know the Americans would have said you got no clothes it wasn't like I had a final race and pulled big wheelies and went bye everyone <laughs> that's me done yeah. you know it just kind of it just kind of petered out but then I kind of you know I thought well my little girl nearly died of meningitis as well in the start of that year and she was very very ill and um and it kind of also kind of put things in perspective a little bit and i and i just suddenly thought you know what i haven't got i just haven't got that drive and energy and just to do go through all this again and try and fight my way back yeah and i sometimes regret that a little bit but actually also i thought i'm in one piece you know i'd invested my money quite carefully i was you know in a good space you know i love my wife i got I had a couple of great kids and so i thought you know what forget it i'll go and do something else how sort of broadcast journalism ever even popped into your head as a possible post-riding career move? Not really. I, I'll be honest with you. I, I always thought when I did that, I was going to run on my own team. Yeah, that was what yeah. you know, I kind of thought I wanted to do. And it was quite funny when I stopped as well, because suddenly people just all come out the woodwork sort of saying, come and do this for us. Oh, come and be our sales rep for the helmets and mm. come and do this. And you've only got one chance when your name's still fresh. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wasn't going to hurry into it. Yeah. And I just thought, I just said, no, no. And um, yeah, that first, yeah, there's no two ways about it. It was incredible incredibly difficult because from when I was eight years old all I wanted to do was race bikes and I hadn't kind of realized that bike racing and me were so almost I was a bike racer what was I if I wasn't a bike racer you know I was yeah. so tightly entwined with it so it was a really difficult those first few years were like losing a leg and also I had to go to to BSB and you know there was you know James Ellison was doing really well at the time 
love James Ellison, great bloke, but he'd never beat me ever. Mm. And, you know, I was having to rave about, you know, this, this guy and like that guy. And, and actually I'm thinking in my helmet, I'm thinking, I'll kick their asses. But actually, you know, and that's no offence to James. James, if you're listening, I love you, man. There's no <laughs> offence there. But but it was kind of, you know, it was also some guys they get on, you know, they're, you know, they can't help but resent or say, I did this or I did that. But also I wasn't going to be one of those guys that was always comparing. And I and I could very easily, even though I felt it inside, you know, I'm I'm always fair on my commentary. You know, if if you do something well, do something well, do something bad, do something. I'm not, I don't take favours. I don't hold grudges. You know, yeah. I say it as I see it. It was just more, the reason I tell you that, it was just really difficult to come out of it and suddenly be in this role. I'd actually preferred almost to be away from the sport for a few years. But there yeah. I was every week in it. But then it took a while. And also, you know, I was rubbish at when I first started. You know, I realised that like everyone, I think, you know, you improve. And, and I hadn't thought that's what I was going to do. And even then I just thought I'll do it for a bit. Because that first year I kept thinking someone's going to get injured and I'm going to take their ride and show everyone what I can do. Yeah, yeah. I remember when you first kind of started on Eurosport, which was quite out of the blue for the reasons that you've just explained. And I always remember sort of thinking that you looked slightly sort of embarrassed and bemused to be there almost <laughs> in those first yeah. sort of seasons or two. It was a really difficult first bit. But yeah, pretty soon I learned to absolutely love it. Yeah. You know, suddenly it's a wet, cold, miserable day and you're drinking a nice coffee and having a laugh with the boys and no one gets killed commentating. <laughs> You know, I just suddenly realised, do you know what? You know, this is fine. It's kind of like, you know, I can put, I've had a great career. You know, I've raced all around the world, two strokes, four strokes, super bikes, Grand Prix bikes. You know, I've had a great time. I've travelled the world, met lots of wicked people. And I thought this could be the next thing. And and Eurosport and then ITV, I had obviously the show on ITV for 10 years alongside Eurosport. So, you know, I was actually, you know, I had a nice little sort of career doing that. But the problem was I wasn't, I knew I needed something else because it's all very well doing 12 weekends in BSB and, you know, five or six world superbikes, but the rest of the time I was kicking about and I was like, this is no good. You know, I need to get <laughs> my teeth into something else. So alongside that, you know, I just, I, a little house came up near where I was and I said to Joe, you know what? I'd always done up my own houses and I'm quite practical. And I said, Joe, you know I'm going to buy that. It was like a little old lady had died and, you know, it just needed rewiring, replumbing, new kitchens and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and so I thought, I'm going to do that. So, you know, I bought it, did it up. And actually, when I came to, to sell it, it did really well. And I thought, Oh, that's interesting. And I loved it as well because I went mm. in, I got a plasterer, a plumber and an electrician in, but everything else I did myself. You know, I put all the kitchen in and ripped it all out and decorated it all and put floors down and stuff. And um, and I thought, well, and also I quite like you come in, you listen to your music, have a cup of tea, you have a couple of <laughs> pints with the boys after work if you want. And actually it kind of, and that evolved from, from there, you know, and it started off small till, you know, I started doing, you know, big sort of multi-million pound developments. Yeah. It's weird because after racing, I never thought I would love anything again as a job mm. but actually I really love the development and it's it's a different thing because it is a ball ache getting it done and all the different trades and all the little timings and it's a naturally awkward thing but at the end when you stand back and you're really really proud of, of what you've done and what you've created and it's going to be there long after you're gone yeah. you know that, that's things to be to be sort of really proud of and, and actually and I love it and I get a real deep fulfillment and love and joy out of that and listen like anything you learned a lot you know got some of my early stuff you know I, it takes a while to build your right team and I had a very when I first started in that you know I had a cow, just a guy who just wasn't as good as I thought he was and it took me a while to learn so you know I had a few problems with some of the early stuff but you soon realise just like racing you've just got to get the right people in yeah. all know their jobs and, and that's what I did and um, and actually and it's lovely I've got a great business that I really enjoy I've got people around me who I like doing it and it's sort of and it's another nice balance to the racing and I can still go racing 
in and go and play on my motorbikes and whatever. And it's so that's that's also been a real. I just thank my lucky stars. That I kind of sort of fell into it, and it and it seems to have worked out really well for me. Yeah, no, and uh, as you say, I mean, you still get to go and do the Eurosport gig at the weekends as well. So it sounds like a pretty yeah. perfect life to me. <laughs> yeah, which is uh, yeah exactly that. And I like working for myself. You know, I like being my own boss. If I want a day off to go enduro riding or you know go mountain biking or whatever, you know, then um, you know, we can go and do that. And um, I think that you know, my probably my my days are numbered in many ways with just how things are, are kind of going now. You know, in sort of TV and media. You know, which I don't know. Who knows what's around the corner? The other day, I've had a, another good in, innings on that. You know, I've been doing it 15 years, and yeah. you know, it, it, it will just it will take its course. You know, if I have my time, if I have my time, if I haven't, then then great. You know, I still enjoy it. I've got such a fab team. You know, with Whitam and Shaky uh, and Matt and Rachel and well, you know the people around it as well. It's not just them, the yeah. producers, the staff, the runners. You know, we just got such a lovely group of people, and that's part of it. It's nice to go away and get a weekend away in your hotel. And you can have a few beers, and, you, and also I'll be watching it anyway, so I might as well be paid to be. I was going to say, yeah, it's a perfect <laughs> gig, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, I love that, and Eurosport have been absolutely great. You know, ITV were, and you know, I've, I've just really enjoyed, and also like a new skill as well, developing that skill, you know, developing my commentary, and watching guys, and you never stop learning. And you know, it's something that I really enjoy. You know, I like, I like it. We have got such an exciting, great sport, and I like to try and put that across in yeah. in what I do. You know, I'm, you know, I, I like it. I'm a emotional about it i'm interested and excited and uh yeah so it's, it's lovely to be sort of doing it no and i mean you've always come across as a very natural presence in front of the screen obviously the dashing good looks help um <laughs> I had um, a very interesting, similar conversation with Simon Crayfar last summer. You know, another guy who transitioned into sports broadcasting. And he, I think he sort of said in so many words that it was almost more nerve-inducing being in front of a live broadcast camera than lining up on the front row of a GP500 grid. So I don't know how you compare the two, but it must be quite a... What a challenge. Yeah, I mean, listen, it, it is a challenge. And, it, you know, it, it is mostly I'm not too bad on the nerves these days. You know, there can be the odd moment here and there where, you know, you, you can do it if you're, you know, some long link with thousands of people right there, you know, and you're like, oh, don't mess up on this one. <laughs> uh, but generally, I don't really think about it anymore. You know, I'm kind of doing my job. I'm confident in what I can do and, and how it works. So, you know, I kind of, and just also having a nice, really great bunch of people around you. So you can, you know, you can rely on them. You can have bands so you can have a laugh and, and it's funny you mentioned Crayford because when I lived in Andorra we were best friends you know me and Crayford we yeah. lived really close to each other and so we did lots together we'd be out trials riding and motocrossing and going to the old pub here and there mm. you know he's a, he's a great guy I love Simon Crayford James it's 15 years since you stopped full-time competitive riding what do you think about the demands on the rider of 2023 and you know where we are now I mean in terms of all the media aspects of it have obviously increased there's also I don't want to sound like a broken record but one of the things that I do ask lots of people about is the degree of regulation I don't want to say intrusion but obviously we see lots more penalties now and I mean you were well renowned during your riding career it's been a very robust racer I mean how would you sort of find dicing on track now and I'm thinking of things like the incident for example at Alton Park last season where O'Halloran very unfortunately got taken out in two races and almost I identical circumstances by Hickman and Bridewell on the two separate occasions I mean lots of penalties were flying around I mean back in your day that would have almost just been sort of taken as Rebbins racing wouldn't it yeah it would be I mean you know you'd have just gone around and punched them straight in the face yeah <laughs> sorted it out behind the garage yeah that's what happened now listen Peter Hickman superb rider Tommy Bridewell superb rider yeah but both those moves were absolutely ridiculous I'm sorry even now it's like it's such a dangerous corner that people get killed there every year 
Yeah. Right? It's no runoff. It's 100 mile an hour. And you know whether you can pass going into that corner coming over Clay Hill. You know, if you're not right on their wheel, it's not happening. And to try and come back for miles, you know, it was crazy. And yeah, it showed a bit about the pressure of showdown. You know, it was very unlike those riders. And, and I respect and admire those riders greatly. But it didn't matter what name had been on the back of the leathers. I, if it was another rider doing the same move, I'd have said exactly the same thing. You know, when it's, it's different now, I mean, we all took it seriously. I felt we were probably one of the last generations of it that also seemed to still have quite a good laugh, you know, on a Sunday night, you know, after it was all done and dusted, you know, yeah. the motorhomes, everyone would stay and you'd all hook up and have a couple of beers and a good laugh. And, and that really doesn't happen so much anymore. You know, they most of them don't drink at all and they go straight home and, and that's that. And I think it's maybe lost a fraction of that. Yeah. I don't believe, you know, people say, oh, it's more competitive or this or that. Do you know what? Being at the front in any era mm. is as competitive as it can be and when I look back at the, the names we had in the grids God, I mean half of them went on to be world champions mm. I also think in other ways it's much nicer you know we talked about the tyre wars things like that in our game and you were so restricted whereas if you can get on a Moto 2 bike now then and you can have a chance to have a couple of years because they seem to take at least a year to get into the groove if you look at your yeah. you know your, your Dixons and your, your Lowe's and stuff but you know you're on the same tyres the same engine you know it, you couldn't have been better to try and show who you are and what you can do so I think in some ways it's greatly improved I do think in Grand Prix the quality throughout the grid has got better yeah. you know I, there was always the top 10 was always amazing but I think that you know you can see, look on a MotoGP grid you know, there's no slouches out there and so I think that's got better I mean it's quite hard because of the way the Spanish and the and the Italians and stuff the way they're created the way they work you know it can be quite hard for, for Brits still to break in you know we should have a Moto2 class in the British Championship yeah. you know I don't think we should be having Super Sport I think it should be Moto 2 and they could do a standard engine for everyone and you could buy the old Honda chassis and whatever and convert them all I just think that that makes sense because the one thing that the British riders really lose out on that we didn't because we I grew up racing 125s and 250s Grand Prix bike yeah. you know where you could change head angle suspension you know pivot points you know and actually so you learnt and the bikes were so rigid and stiff those changes made a big difference so you learnt to know what those changes make whereas these guys growing up on production motorcycles they're wallowy they're not as precise you can do quite a big change for nothing and also a lot of the things you can't change you're not playing out with head angles and pivot points and you know critical degrees of, of ride heights and, and different flexing yokes and you know there were so many things that, that yeah. we learned and the Italians and the Spanish you know they've got these amazing Moto2 championships where they're growing up and, and experimenting with chassis design and what works and what doesn't so they're much better prepared for coming to prototype racing mm. which is I think also why we do so well going to superbikes because that's kind of what we grow up on Yeah, but I think that's something that you know we should do more in the UK I think there should be a you know I would love to see some sort of standardish Moto2 class you know we had that um, that spirit triumph you know they were kind of doing something like that and you know it would have been I think that makes a lot of sense yeah in terms of prepping the guys to go up yeah prepping the guys but it's kind of and girls the race is still great now and they're still having fun but it's but it is kind of different I don't think they kind of have as much fun together you know as as maybe we once did but yeah. maybe they disagree you know I guess as well social media and the fact that everybody's got a camera pointing at somebody these days you get sort of blown away on social media if there's well yeah. you, you can't do anything right or wrong because no, no. that's a subjective opinion depending on who sees it so it's a nightmare I probably never even got here if there was those <laughs> things in my day you yeah. know uh, so um, <laughs> you know it is a you know it is a changed world in, in that way but yeah ultimately you know it's still 
still just what a great sport it is. But it, you know, in the British Championship, it breaks my heart that, you know, the, it just, you know, we, we need to be trying to funnel some more money through the sport. You know, it, we should have prize money. You know, prize money should be standard. These guys racing, even if you're buys a set of tyres or, or, you know, whatever, you know, these guys are racing for 12th or 13th or whatever, you know, they, they should be in it. And you're good enough to win a British Championship race. You should be getting a nice bit of prize money. Yeah. That should be happening. You know, it's sort of, it is, you know, I think that's, that's something that, that should happen. And I actually, that since the credit cards, the money now is still not like it was before the credit card, right? 15 years ago, mm. you know, you could earn hundreds of thousands of pounds in the 90s racing superbikes, and you know, it is only a few people probably earning that now. Um, so that I find upsetting because you know, if you're good and you've you know, and actually, so many guys are where prepared to ride for nothing or do it for nothing or bring something, and it's sort of it's you know, there's nothing wrong with trying to get bring a sponsor, and you know, that, that's clever thinking. You know, I used to got a 16, I'd my mum and dad would drop me off and I'd be in a tie with my briefcase and all my things printed out and I'd go round and round industrial estates and, and whatever but you know I picked up loads of sponsorship you know I was heavily sponsored but I would work and work and work at that yeah. and you know it was something that you know I, I do think that's sad for me because you've got a lot of guys who are coming out of it and they haven't really got much of it they've given their whole lives to it and and you think oh, that's that should be criminal you know in a sport this good that's you know this well followed you know and it's got good TV coverage you yeah, know it's like should be superstars, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it is kind of what it is. I mean, I feel lucky that I was in it at that stage in many ways. Yeah. But it does, it does sort of upset me that you know I do feel there should be it's a sport that the guys deserve to be paid better. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And I mean, British weather aside, you don't go to many a BSB round without there being a big old crowd. So I mean, there is a big following, but I suppose it is still a niche sport. But nevertheless, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it, it averages thirty, forty thousand, doesn't it? Which is yeah. like a Premiership side. Yeah, yeah. Right? And um, you know, so it's kind of you know that paid money they all pay for the, the you know, to get there. And you know, I think that don't get me wrong. Listen, Jonathan Palmer, Stuart Higgs, all the guys—they've done an amazing job with BSB. Yeah, they really have. You know, it's incredible where they've taken it. Yeah, but I do think that they, there's probably a, a little slice of the pie more that could maybe go go back to the to the guys themselves. No, right, fair point. Uh, yeah, and it's good to get your opinion on that. Without going into lots of detail on BSB 2023, but been a couple of big moves in the BSB class. I mean, Tom yeah. Bridewell gone to PBM. You yeah. got Christian Iden, who I think could be the dark horse for the championship, going over to the Oxford. Yeah, I mean, anybody catching your attention in terms of you're expecting them to have a, a push on the title this year? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be. I mean, it's all always interesting. You know, I was Davy Todd impressed me last year in um Stop. You know, yeah. in, in Superstock, and I think that you know Pagets they run a, a great team. Wonderful to see them back in. Yes, absolutely. In the top, the top line, and yeah. I'd like to see sort of him do well. You know, I think he's just a likable character, and uh, you know, he's obviously a good sort of all rounder. You know, if there's any justice in the world, you'd say O'Halloran. You know, would have a good shot at it. Yeah, and it's kind of funny, Max Cook. You know, the young rider on the FS3. You know, I think that. That's a, an interesting ride. He really obviously impressed in in that junior superstock, and then for him to jump on that super sport bike, and he really impressed me on that super sport bike because that's a, a tough class. Yeah. It's a learning year. He's not going to go winning the championship, but I, you know, I think we've got some. It can get a bit stayed sometimes. Mm. You know, sometimes there's a time when people need to move on. Yeah, you know, we have we've seen it in super bikes for bloody years. The same guys mooching around, swapping around. You're like, they couldn't beat them. They could never been able to beat Johnny Ray before. What makes you think they can beat him now? Mm. Yeah, you know, it took new blood. It took getting top rack in to, to do it you know bringing Bautista across and it just and sometimes BSG can be a bit sort of like that you know with Ray gone obviously there's a, a hole there I think you know the Bridewell Owen 
Ducati. That's going to be interesting. As you say, Idan on that Ducati. Well, he went really well second in the championship when he was on the, the PBM. And yeah. you know, he seemed to suit that. So that's, and that team, a little one-man rider team, really personal, really good. Wilf and the boys at, you know, Oxford Products, they run a brilliant team. And yeah. uh, that'll be interesting. Vickers on the OMG bike. You know, that, that's going to be obviously really, you know, he had a terrible year this year and he's going to have to, to build his confidence. But what a dream ride for him. He certainly showed flashes of brilliance. You know, I didn't expect him to get that, but that's a... Make or break year, isn't it? Mm. A, a very big year. And Carl Ride, you know, he kind of needs to step up. He had some great rides last year, but he kind of went off the boil a bit mid-season and, and was, I think, a bit disappointing towards the end. I'd like, I like Carl. would like to see him do well, but not quite sure what was, was missing there. The Hondas, Irwin Neve, that's an interesting one. Um, mm. I mean, obviously they've had Irwin before. You know, he's a great rider. You know, he's all he's all hot. It was going to be interesting to see how he does kind of leading that setup, as it were. And Tom Neve, you know, that, that's going to be an interesting one. Obviously, Kent's on that, you know, his little personal team now. Who else we got? Charlie Nesbitt going to be back in BSB this year. I'm not quite sure what he's up to because he had a few yeah. rides at the end of the season on the Suzuki, didn't he? Yeah, Nesbitt's on the Suzuki, you're right. Yeah. He was brilliant. He was. Another young guy who's getting a chance at long last to come up and show what he can do. And do you know what? I really rate him. He was superb on the Moto2 bike. Um, absolutely superb. He got yeah. on that bike. It wasn't the most competitive. You know, he got on the podium. He, did he win a race? No, he didn't win, did he? But I got on the podium. I'm just trying to think. He had a he got on the podium. He, he was, but he was, oh, do you know what I mean? I, it's terrible, isn't it? It was only last season. But he There's was so just, many races. Yeah, there is. There's so many things you're doing. But he was really impressive for me. He's smooth. He's neat. He doesn't make mistakes, but he's aggressive. He's fast. He's got a good head in his shoulder. He obviously knows what he wants out of his bike. And again, you know, all that time on a motor too, when you can change it and knock it about and a one, two, five, you know, it's built him into an intelligent rider who knows what to do. And that's the difference that people don't, they forget. When you get something like Super bikes you're all decent riders yeah. but the guys who know how to get the best out of the motorcycle how to save a tire how to get it working a bit better how to make you know just all these things add up and it's the guys that really can do the whole package that make the difference and the other one i mean you've got to mention brooks because this is brooks is either going to retire mm. you know or he's going to be great you know there's no middle ground for him after the years that he's had you know i was amazed he managed to to last the whole year last year you know brooks has been incredible he's been in a an amazing rider but again I don't know whether he's you know it comes to a certain age and you know also sometimes it you lose a little bit of something and yeah. I'm not saying that he just definitely has but there wasn't a lot wrong with those PBM bikes as we saw when Tom decided that Donington was safe enough and he was happy enough that you know <laughs> he would go out and win and to be honest I think had you had someone else a Bradley Ray being on those bikes Mackenzie or Halloran they'd have been winning week out um, so you know that's going to be a real interesting one to see how he gets on a bit BMW. I wouldn't say it's the easiest bike either mm. alongside Hickman. You know, Hickman gets the best out of it. So that'd be an interesting sort of pairing. Ken Jackson obviously on the FS3 again. You know, he's a very, very good rider, but he, he I'm not sure he quite has the, that last bit to be a champ. And I'm, mm. and you hate me saying it and I hate saying it because I love him. He's a great kid, but but he just, he's so nearly there, but he, he just, you know, he just if he could win like five or six races in a year and yeah I think that winning mentality obviously he has one but if he could just do a bit more winning and because it almost seems to me like he just lacks a little faction of belief mm. and and actually you know because I like him and it'd be great to see him but he kind of just you know my point is you know he's going to be there you know he's going to be third fourth fifth in the championship you know that's you know he's he's there he's superb but but he just feels like I just always want him to do a bit more yeah there's races where I've seen him follow someone pretty much all race and I 
crowd like, go on, run up the inside, even as you go wide, you know, just have a go. So it's going to be a really interesting year. I mean, it's a great thing about BSB. It's such, it, a, isn't it? yeah. such a fantastic championship. And there's always someone that comes out the woodworks, you know, OMG last year. Yeah, they were incredible. They built an amazing motorcycle. They were, yeah. you know, they were just a really great addition to the series. And will we see another team kind of blossom and, and flourish where we didn't, you know, the Hondas, are they going to come good? You know, we're going to see those boys, you know, Neve and Irwin sort of do something. So, you know, it'd be interesting. And like I say, loads of young talent. I did mention Jack Scott as well, the Moto2 champion. You know, he's coming up, not, you know, obviously you know, on a, a lesser machine compared to some, but, you know, he's, he's got talent. So it's going to be good to see some of these guys come in and start mixing it up. And yeah. uh, and some of the old guys, you know, the older guys, your O'Hallowans and your, your, your Brooks and your Bridewells and whatever. And, and you're in to see how, how those boys are going to do. So it, it looks set to be a really good year. Shout out for a rider that I've always admired and I think he's criminally underrated. Uh, hasn't really had so much in BSB, but I just love Richard Cooper, like Super Sub. I mean, he is yeah. just one of the greatest riders ever, I think, because he just tends to win whatever he's on. Yeah, he's yeah, he's brilliant. And what a lovely chap as well. Big, big fan of Richard Cooper and uh, it's always lovely to see him ride. I, I love the way he just sort of dips in and out. Yeah, comes to wins a few races and then goes off again. And that's it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, no, I mean, always good to see him. So no, I, yeah, I hope he, I, I, don't, I don't know quite what he's up to. Well, he's Richard, no, yeah. don't know. I, I must admit, I don't know. I haven't heard anything particular for him yet. But um, so yeah, so I mean, it's yeah, it, it will be a, a good year. What hopes? It always is, isn't it? BSB yeah. it never, always. never fails to disappoint. And looking forward to getting to a few rounds this year. And yeah, yeah. come and say hello. Come and have a coffee with us. We'll do. Yeah, that'd be good. And try and catch a few riders as well. So, um, James, a few quick fire things, then we'll let you get on with your evening. Sure. Um, these are kind of one word answers. Let's say so. Um, two stroke or four stroke? Two stroke. Thought you might say that. Best bike you've ever raced? The Red Bull Ducati was, you know, easily the fastest, the most rounded, the easiest package I ever raced on. I loved my R7 Yamaha. Yeah, you know, it was just a just a beautiful thing that you just rode the absolute wheels off it. <laughs> you know, it was an incredible thing. Just you grabbed it by the scruff of the neck. My Harris 500. When I got that working, I used to love that thing. It was a little nutcase. Mm. You know, it was evil, but it was just beautiful as well. What else? You know, the, the, my 99 Suzuki. I liked. You know, yeah. I mean, I've ridden some great things, but I think probably the easiest bike I, I ever rode was that Red Bull Ducati. Okay. Rider you looked up to when you were coming through? So when I was really young, Eddie Lawson, you know, he was absolutely my hero. When I got to Grand Prix, you could not be just in awe of, of Mick Dewan. Um, not that he was doing anything particularly I didn't think I could do, but just, you know, his consistency, his speed and his, you know, just, you know, I've got some great memories of us both just, you know, sliding it together in a practice or whatever, you know, but it was a, that bike, you know, his bike was still the bike as, you know, that bike was just, oh, looked, looked amazing, you know, so he was a top guy you would absolutely admire. Then obviously it came into to Rossi, you know, Rossi, how can you not just mm. love Rossi because he was such a character. But I think the guy who's, you know, sort of blown me away the most, only just because he does things that I just don't think I could have done, was Mark Marquez. You know, the way he rides a, a motorcycle, you know, I've been on track with Rossi and Dewan and Schwantz and Bayliss and Edwards and whatever, but the way he catches the front, you know, the way he's got the rear wheel in the air, cranked over, his absolute, you know, disregard for his personal safety, which I love. I and the laws of physics. <laughs> and the laws of physics. But I mean, he is superb. Yeah. I, I love watching him. You know, he's a, just an in, incredible rider. And you know, I hope that he's going to be able to come back to fitness and be able to ride again how he really can ride. Yeah. You know, obviously he's got his hands full. That Ducati now in MotoGP is unbelievable. You know, it's such a clever, awesomely fast, brutal thing. And it's so 
rideable now. You know, it's such a rideable thing. Whereas yeah. it used to be absolutely evil, with the exception of Stoner. You know, the odd Bayless ride here or there it was just a, a nasty, nasty thing. But um, they've just made it absolutely exquisite. And yeah. I mean, as they have in in World Superbikes, you know, Ducati right now are building the most incredible motorcycle. Yeah, and they're gorgeous. I, although I wouldn't say the MotoGP one's gorgeous. It's no, it's, it's a horrid looking thing. Yeah. It's a weird, long, brutal, finesque sort of. You know, but it, it's also just awesome. You know, whereas the Panigale, you know, that new one especially. I mean, the other guys are going to be in trouble with that new Panigale. I think because yeah. it's so powerful out the box already. Was it two thirty or two forty? Mm. You know, as a road bike. I mean, it's like Jesus. But they thought Bautista was fast on the straights last year. Yeah, so I mean, that's going to be a, a difficult one for him. But we yeah, are going to World Superbikes. I mean, how good does that look as well? You know, we're going to have Ray. Obviously, he's going to be lovely to see Ray do the European rounds. Yeah, you know, I think that Yamaha's decent. Yeah, it's, I'm looking forward to seeing Petrucci in it. You know, he's a he's a great character. Who else have we got? Top rack. I mean, where do you stand on the top rack coming to MotoGP thing? I must just ask you about that because of anybody, he's the one that has the closest kind of style to say Mark Marquez, isn't it? In terms of that, all on the front end, without doubt. You know, he's an unbelievably special rider, and I would love to have seen him in MotoGP. Yeah. At the same time, it would have been a tragic loss to World Superbike, and I'm thrilled the World Superbike have got him because he's such a great character. Right now, with Johnny Ray, who's still incredible. You know, Bautista, top rack. You know, you've got three guys who are completely different who are all amazing battling it out week in week out three different manufacturers three different countries you know it's it's been a World Superbikes is in such great health right now yeah. but again it needed some new blood coming in you know so I'm pleased to see your Ray's coming in obviously we've got Agatha coming in yeah. Remy Gardner yeah. you know I mean, what a team that's going to be it's sort of a you know like I say Petrucci you know it's going to be a really interesting year I just hope that Bradley Ray's bike is you know a bike that they give him a bike that he can bond with like he could with his Yamaha from OMG if they give him something like that yeah. I really think that you know that boy's you know, I think that boy's got miles you know he's super quick he's calm you know he's he's. I would really love to see Bradley Ray do well yeah. and I'm thrilled that you know it's been a while since the champs made that move and you know it was unfortunate McKenzie wasn't able to make that move because I, I rate McKenzie but it's lovely to see Ray you know in the world championship shame it's not a full season but you know even the European rounds is going to be a lot better than, than none yeah and I actually think it might be tactically quite a smart move just having a sort of a mini season but just putting in a few good performances yeah. just getting himself ready for the next year yeah. I think he's going to do well actually I think he might surprise a few people yeah I, I really hope so I think he's got the capability to do it's just yeah. always difficult when you arrive and there's guys that have already had a few races under their belts and you know, it's a bit like being injured at the start of the season you're kind mm. of arriving a bit rusty and they're already sharp they already know the circuits they you know there's yeah, there's going to be some things you know, having said that you know obviously when he was young he did a lot of of riding, you know, whether it be Red Bulls or mm. you know, Junior Championships. So hopefully, and he'll pick them up decent. Also, when you're a good rider, you know, you pick them up. You don't have to look at Ben Spees. Christ, to see what he did in that opening year. Yeah, but it's yeah. I mean, you know, all round the, the the sports looking great. You know, I I hope they don't. You know, I'm not a fan of of over penalising it and bringing in all these penalties and all oh, you can't touch that bit of paint. And mm. you know, I mean, I think a lot of it is such a load of bollocks. And actually, the line's the line. You'll see the line because everyone's taking it. You know, it's like sometimes I just think we can over police it and they love it in Formula One but they need it because the racing's crap right <laughs> exactly right so it's like but we don't need it it's the opposite we, you know, we need to be left alone we need to sort it out and you know it's very weird that anyone 
you know, takes advantage. There's a bit of curb that everyone runs, everyone runs it. You know, if someone catches that bit of grass, they'll catch it. You know, I think it, it just, you know, and also keeping it there and keeping it painted. Yeah, it's also cars. If you put grass there, no one would touch it anyway. Yeah. So I, I think some of these things can sometimes be a bit, I've never been a fan of the job's worth or, you know, I mean, I, I find some of that that's creeping in, mm. I don't like at all. And I'm never going to sit down and take it on the chin because I think it's crap. Mm. And I just don't think it needs it. But it's here to stay. There's, and I'm not some dinosaur that, oh, it has to be like that when I was a lad. You know what I mean? It's sort of, but at the same time, it's kind of, uh, you know, I just think that some of those things aren't necessary. And I, I, I hope that we don't, you know, you don't want to kill the racing. You know, there's always going to be, it's a dangerous, close, fast sport. And there's always going to be incidents. You want to see them looked after you and make it safe as, as possible. Of course yeah. you do. Yeah. But equally, you kind of, you've got to leave some of that, you know, you've got to leave. It, that's why we come and watch it. That's why we do it. That's why it sings to our souls because it's, it is a bit dangerous and it is a bit risky and, and racing is is that. But, you know, ultimately though, it's not a contact sport and people shouldn't be whacking into each other and knocking people into barriers at 100 miles. Now, of course not. But, you know, it's it sort of, but it also it does need to be left a little bit wild. Yeah, I, I do agree. My, my quick fire questions aren't quite going to plan. <laughs> oh, sorry, man. I mean, you see me, I'll talk no, we, we just get talking and we can't stop. Okay, I did prep you on this one. So uh, any bike, any track from history. So you got choice of whatever you want. You've had a bit of time to think about this one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I wanted to go for Duan's Repsol um, Honda. You know, I remember riding around in, in 95 and 96 and just wanting, I've never wanted something so much in my life to, to have a go on that. And I'm gutted that I've never had a go on that. That bike was was absolutely incredible. I'd love to have ridden that. Um, absolutely love to have ridden that. Rossi's M1, you know, right at the time when he was, you know, right, you know, when he was just winning everything, that bike again would have been a, an absolute beaut to have ridden. Any particular track that you'd want to take one of these things around? Yeah, I'd love to take and do his bike around Bruno, the Czech Republic. Um, you know, that would have just been incredible. You know, Rossi's bike. I'd like to have taken that round, you know, in the same doing. There was a track called Shah Alam in Malaysia where the yeah. Grand to be. It's now a housing estate, but it it was an amazing track, and it had these fourth gear like right handers where you would just have it smoking, you know, 120 mile an hour all the way round on those 500s. And I'd love to have ridden, you know, those bikes around. But I think the Czech Republic's got it's just such a lovely thing, you know. It's beautiful. It's like this natural amphitheater, swooping turns, always massive crowd. Yeah, I would love to have ridden something around there. Phillip Island, I love. But, you know, I love Donington Park. It was one of the great things about doing these championships. You know, oh, my God, the Jello. You know, where do you stop? A monster. Yeah, I know. Um, we are yeah. lucky, aren't we, in bike racing? We've still got a lot of classic tracks to yeah, enjoy. Absolutely. And it's sort of, but yeah, I mean, there's there's loads of bikes you know, I'd like to ride. Now, the current crop, you know, I think the Yamaha of Quattararo um, is probably, in many ways, the nicest looking thing to flow, but it's obviously gutless as hell compared to that torpedo. I mean, that Ducati, I mean, wow, and how clever it is, and the electronics and the, the you know, the aerodynamics and just the, the modes of the thing. You know, they are getting unbelievable, aren't they? You know, yeah. Are getting so complex. We have a great deal to look forward to in 2023 in BSB and World Superbike and MotoGP. Moto America is going to be good this year. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. James, on the socials, where can people find you and follow you? So, I'm only on one. I'm on the, I'm on Twitter, BD yeah. Hayden, I think it is. Yeah, so that's the only one I'm on. I'm not, listen, I can, I'll be honest with you, I'm not on them a lot. You know, I'm a <laughs> bit of a dinosaur when it comes to that stuff. Not because I'm a dinosaur because I can't work it, but just, I don't know, life's busy and I kind of, my personal life, I kind of like 
like to keep more like my personal life and and I kind of use it for bike stuff and some nice stuff sometimes but I kind of I don't know it's a slightly different generational thing in a way I kind of you don't yeah. I'm here look at me I'm doing this I'm doing that you know I kind of you know I struggle with a little bit of that sometimes yeah. uh, no I'm glad to see you don't let people know what you've had on your toast for breakfast every morning so that's uh, that's good day I ever post a photo of me and I said I want you just to put me down right so, yeah so, likewise so, yeah, I don't mind saying some photos of bikes or the odd maybe a snap from holiday or something but it's actually generally I kind of you know and if it's a nice bike thing or something that you know I'll do on but I'm, I'm not I know I'm not I don't do it quite enough or, or whatever to you know it's just it's sort of one of those things I do it here and there but that's kind of the way I like it you know I don't want to be heavily involved in it I don't want to life is busy enough without answering lots of questions to lots of people that you know at the end of the day I'm a very approachable easygoing guy you want to come and ask so you can come and do it anytime but I can't always guarantee you're going to get yeah that quickly because sometimes I don't look at my Twitter for months well James I asked the question and you answered the call so all that really remains is on my behalf and that of the listeners I want to say thank you ever so much it took us a couple of goes to get this interview in the bag but we've had a long old chat and um, it's been great it's been so much fun to sort of reminisce on your career I hope uh, it's invoked a few memories for you as well and um, yeah hopefully we'll catch up with each other at the racetrack at some point this year yeah well Richard many thanks as well it's been a real pleasure I do apologise about having to harm it (laughs) a few days but um, not everybody has seven kitchens delivered all out of the blue so good chat and uh, great to catch up and um, thank you for having me on look forward to seeing you thanks James once again cheers Thank you.